Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Becker, and this podcast topic is Legal Support to Operations, focusing on the recent publication of FM 384. We welcome Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer, professor in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We also welcome Major Charlie Fowler, author of FM 384. Charlie currently serves as a legal advisor at Army University, located here on Fort Leavenworth. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, ma'am. Gentlemen, you both have different paths that led you to becoming judge advocates. I'm curious, can you share your experiences with our listeners? Hey, Charlie, you want to go first, or is this more interesting than mine? Sure thing, sir. So I enlisted as an infantryman after, right after 9-11. Um, I did five years enlisted, and then I did a Grindigold program, a two-year Grindigold program. Uh, then graduating from ROTC, I did what the, the JAG Corps has an educational delay program where I was able to commissioned right into the IRR, go to law school, paid for it myself, and then I commissioned again in 2012, and I've been to the JAG Corps, and I've been an active duty judge advocate since. My story is a little bit different. Um, I commissioned as an engineer officer out of ROTC in uh, 2002, first graduating class after 9-11, and deployed not long after as a sapper platoon leader to what was then Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. Did that for a full year, came back, was a battalion support platoon leader, battalion S4, and then I applied to what's called the Funded Legal Education Program, or FLEP. Every service has one of these things, and it's Congress authorizing us service to send a small number of active duty officers, now it's active duty officers and some NCOs, to law school on the Army's dime, or the Navy, or the Marine Corps, or the Air Force, for three years. And upon graduating and passing a bar exam, you transfer into the JAG Corps. And there's no break in service. It's uh, you're on active duty um, all three years that you're at law school. You do uh, a summer rotation at the nearest JAG office, kind of interning for six weeks uh, over the summer break. And other than that, you take a, an ACFT or an APFT at the time once or twice a year and, and you're good. So I did that at Ohio State. After I passed the bar exam, I went to what was in Fort Hood, Fort Cavazos, and was immediately in a courtroom uh, trying a, um, a general court-martial sexual assault case and dual-hatting essentially as the brigade judge advocate, so the senior legal advisor to a brigade commander. I did that for a couple of years, and then I had a su- series of subsequent jobs afterward, <laughs> another deployment to Iraq, and uh, I, I kind of culminated here at the JAG school. I taught three years at West Point and then came here, and this is now my second year teaching at the uh, at the JAG School in the National Security Law Department. Thanks for sharing your experiences. So Charlie, writing, editing, and rewriting doctrine is always a bit a big undertaking that lasts for months and sometimes even years. You authored FM 384, which was published in September 2023. What guidance did you receive on updating the publication, or what were the big changes that were incorporated into FM 384? Yes, ma'am. So for the JAG Court was a about a three-year process from the last publication in 2020 of FM, what was then FM 1-04, we almost, the JAG Corps almost immediately started doing a rewrite. The guidance that 
I received. So the JAG, the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center in School is the .mil PFP proponent for the JAG Corps. Um, that's split into the school and the legal center. And I worked for Future Concepts Directorate at the center, which is just does a myriad of things. It, it reviews all doctrine on behalf of the JAG Corps, Army Joint, Multi-Service, and Allied. It also does future planning and, and, and quite a few other things. And there's three of us that are active in one reserve, so a very small doctrine section. But what we did was we leveraged the entire JAG Corps. So we started the rewrite of it, um, and then we sent that rewrite out to across the JAG Corps, um, all three compos, TRADOC, ForceCom, to core levels, we included our OCTs on it. And then, so we got a lot of input in what would be a good rewrite for it. And then we started what would be the CAD, the CAD process for the doctrine development of doing the initial draft, staffing it army-wide through CAD, and then so on. But we, we knew there was a few things. So as, as the doctrine proponent, we knew that that change to FN3.0 was coming and we reviewed the the uh, program directorate, the initial draft and the final draft. So we were able to incorporate that from the from the initial draft of 3.0 into ours. And then another thing that changed was the joint publication, JP 1-04, was renumbered to FM 3-84. And so we, since we were changing ours anyway, we incorporated that change. And then it's going to be a, um, an iterative, iterative process as well because big change to how all of the JAG Corps, how the military does military justice is, is uh, this month with the Office of the Special Trial Council. So we will have to, after we get a few iterations of, of figuring out what this, what the Office of Special Trial Council is, how it fill, fits into military justice, how the other side, the commander-led military justice fits in with the Office of Special Trial Council military justice, uh, will incorporate that, incorporate that into doctrine. So were there any, or I should say, what from FM 3.0 changed? You, you know, you, we wouldn't think necessarily multi-domain operations are going to change the the JAG Corps doctrine. What were some of the specific changes that you made? Well, you know, sort of the surface level changes were um, incorporating all of those changes in language from FM 3.0 whether that is multi-domain operations or whether that's defining um, what a rear area, uh, you know, th those sort of changes are. Um, but also, you know, we offer, the, the, our legal support uh, goes across all domains and we do have experts in, we have experts in certain areas of the law and then we also have positions that require expertise in certain areas of the law, whether that's at Space Command or um, the Army Service component for Space Command. We do have a track where we there's judge advocates who get and there's I think it's one judge advocate a year gets an LLM in space law, and so we do have people that are experts in that. And and you know to to effectively carry out multi-domain operations, we have to be able to advise commanders and service members and the people doing those jobs so that they can navigate through whether that's a cyber operation that might cross international boundaries or it might affect, you know, its effect might be felt in a country, a third country, a country that's a party to an armed conflict. 
you know, how we do intelligence law, um, how, how, how people are able to collect intelligence, where they're able to collect intelligence, how they're able to store it. You know, the, the, the law touches all, all, every part of multi-domain operations. Freedom of navigation, how, you know, if we're doing a maritime environment, where can we operate in different phases of conflict or at stages prior to conflict? So it's, we tried to incorporate, we, we'd already been providing legal support to all the domains that we operate in a lot of it was a change in language on on how we how we describe that support we provide okay yeah one one way to think about it or at least i think about it is uh if if big army or joint force is a shark the jag corps is one of those little fish that you see swimming alongside the shark kind of like attached all the time um when it moves we move uh, if it changes doctrine, it changes direction, it changes scope, we have to do the, the same thing because a, a misperception about Army JAGs is that, you know, we provide, you know, wills and tax advice and, you know, landlord-tenant dispute advice and, and then try cases. And that's kind of the limit of what we do. And that, that is far, far from the truth. Um, a vast number of judge advocates and, and paralegal support is devoted to um, operational matters and the language of operations, um, you know, comes from those those core uh, warfighting function uh, branches and their and their doctrine. So, if we're talking to JAGs about their responsibilities with regard to providing legal advice in all the various things that that our our clientele, our operators, and our commanders do, then our language needs to match their language. We need to be able to speak the same terminology, the same concepts, the same ideas, and be able to Id- identify for our newer JAGs expectations like what where might you find yourself as a national security law attorney as a captain you know where on staff might you find yourself what working groups might you be in where do you sit in a core headquarters or a cocom headquarters and that's just operational national security law um things as charlie uh, alluded to things are going to be changing with military justice practice as well not tied to operations but as you know military justice has a as an outsized influence on commander's time and attention and energy, and we need to be cognizant of that. So all those things that we do as JAGs and as paralegals reflects the tempo, the style, the, the tone, the, the methods, the, the, the language of, of, our, of our operating clientele, if that, makes, if that makes sense. So again, Army Big Shark, we're the little tiny fish swimming alongside. Absolutely. That, you both gave a lot of information. So I have a few questions. But first, I want to ask about the different legal functions. So you talked military justice, you talked national security law, and in FM 384, it outlines all those. So can you kind of just give listeners a foundation of the different legal functions and then how you do see those in an operational environment? I know Charlie kind of hit upon those, but just so we can have them succinctly. Sure. Uh, Charlie, you want to take justice? Sure thing, sir. So we have... So we have six core legal functions, national security law, legal assistance, military justice, trial defense service, fiscal and contract law, and administrative and civil law. So the the military justice and the trial defense are two sides of the coin. Military justice is providing advice to commanders, to staff, to law enforcement about misconduct, um, specifically criminal misconduct, and then helping T- taking that case, kind of what a what a, a district's attorney 
office would do, taking that case from the investigation, with working with law enforcement agents in investigation through uh, trial and then post-trial work as well. We do, we have a two, three level, we have a, a army appeals court and then we have the court of appeals for the armed forces. And then trial defense, the other side of that is one of the two jobs in the JAG Corps, you can form an attorney-client relationship with an individual person rather than representing the army. And so you're representing soldiers, whether they're facing accusations of criminal misconduct that might end in a court-martial or an Article 15 non-judicial punishment, or whether that's a, a, some sort of administrative, adverse administrative action happening to them, a failure of uh, a ch being chaptered for a failure of, of army body composition, or a GOMAR, or a referred OER or NCOER, or really for cause. A third function that I'll talk about is legal assistance. So that is the other job where we can form an attorney-client relationship, and that's advising DOD ID card holders, active duty, guard, reserve, retirees, family members on a range of legal questions they might have, whether that's providing a notarial service, notarizing things, uh, providing basic wills, doing if they have a landlord-tenant dispute, if they bought a, a car and they need to know what the lemon law is, soldier-sailor relief act issues, just really anything that somebody might come into an office and ask about as long as we're not representing them in court. So I think that leaves uh, contract fiscal, admin, civil, and NSL for me. Uh, so I'll, I'll finish with NSL. Um, so let me start with admin. Uh, admin law, admin administrative or civil law is a division in every office of the staff judge advocate around the army. And if, in fact, I think all the other services have something very similar. Think of it like um, uh, the city attorney's office at, at the mayor's office. It's a cell of attorneys that help the command team manage the installation, for lack of a better phrase. You know, the army runs on regulations and policies, and someone needs to draft those regulations and policies. Someone needs to review those for legal sufficiency. Someone needs to interpret them if there are ambiguities. Um, and someone needs to help investigators look into violations of those regulations and policies. And that's where our admin and civil law JAGs and paralegals come in. They they are enablers to, to installation management, I guess you could say. It is a, a, I would say it's a key developmental assignment for a young judge advocate as a captain. I never did it, which is why I'm underdeveloped as a lieutenant colonel. But I did some of it as a brigade judge advocate as a captain, kind of my hand in all of those different pots. But that is essentially what those attorneys do. JAGs in those billets are typically there for a year or two. It may be their first assignment as a JAG or maybe their second assignment as a JAG. They're typically supervised by a major or a, a, a civilian attorney, but they provide advice to the SJA, to the command group, and to organizations, like tenant organizations around the installation. So that's what they do. Contract fiscal is is somewhat related. You know, if a command, a directorate, an office wants to buy something, they've got to they've got to spend money on it, and they, and they have to have an a, an authority to spend that money on that thing. And the ability for the government to spend money, the government's money, whether it's five hundred dollars or five trillion dollars, has its origin in the Constitution. And the Constitution says we don't spend money without an appropriation from Congress. So Congress has to have basically a statute that says DOD can spend money on X and they have this money for this amount of time. And then within that, there are subdivisions and other sub appropriations, et cetera, et cetera. The bottom line is there has to be an authority to spend money. So when a command wants to go buy 
new gym equipment for morale recreation purposes, or um, it wants to improve um, a parking lot next to the headquarters, uh, or, or, or do any of those you know, kind of routine maintenance things or anything for the betterment of the installation of the unit, and it needs to purchase it because it's not being issued it, they have to go through a legal review. And the legal review is generally run out of the contract fiscal office. Each one of those OSJAs, Office of Staff Service Advocate, that every installation has one. There's usually not very many people in those in those builds because they're very specialized. It takes a lot of experience and talent, honestly, to be a good contract fiscal law attorney. And a lot of ours are civilians, many of whom are former JAGs. So that's what they do. Now, NSL, uh, a bit biased because that's what I do now and uh, what I did in my last operational assignment, that is, well, traditionally, it was it was very limited. It, it was traditionally basically just lawyers advising commanders on the law of war and making sure that there weren't committing war crimes. And a lot of that comes out of My Lai, the My Lai incident in Vietnam in the 1970s and the calls for reform, because it was evident through investigations that lawyers had a hand in that troops and commanders were not being trained well enough in their obligations under like the Geneva Conventions, the law of war. And so the DOD implemented a law of war program that's still in effect today. It's, a, it's either a Department of Defense directive or Department of Defense instruction that lays out the requirement that JAGs be present and available and providing training and advice to commanders on all things law of armed conflict. And that is kind of our running authority, so to speak, to kind of be at the commander and the, and the staff's side when making when making plans and when making strike decisions, um, involved in, in training before you go out the door, all those things we do, training on ROE, training on escalation of force, all, all that stuff is now part of our portfolio as national security lawyers. However, that portfolio has blown up, expanded considerably over the last 20 years because of the the regularity and the frequency with which we've been deploying our units. And when those units go, JAGs go. Big Shark goes, we go. And the breadth and depth of the things that we are now doing and able to do require whole new levels of experience and expertise legally to just to comprehend and, and advise on. So the, the easy example there is cyber. And you know, cyber tools and techniques are limited to certain kinds of units, but those units are, are using those in ways that put commanders at risk for either violating domestic law, you know, U.S. statutes that, that talk about privacy, security, because those things that they're doing with cyber tools might have an effect that that breaches one of those statutes. Well, the experts in the statutes are the JAGs. On the other side of it, those commanders using those tools might end up doing something that looks like an armed attack. And if that is the case, an armed attack by one nation against another nation triggers that nation's, the other nation's right to self-defense under the UN Charter. So mm-hmm. we are trying, you know, not being in conflict with another nation state, we are trying to operate below that threshold of conflict so that we don't inadvertently trigger a war. So we are constantly advising cyber law attorneys who do NSL work. Cyber law attorneys are constantly advising those kinds of units that have that capability on on where that line is and where the line isn't and where there's wiggle room and interpret interpreting somewhat complex technical statutes, looking at past practice, all those things those new cyber law experts do. Uh, and it's become such an important function within multi-domain operations now that we are sending JAGs to get specialized LLMs. It's a master of law degree. It's an advanced one-year law degree after they've already been a lawyer. We're sending them to civilian law schools to get 
cyber law degrees. Um, and then we're, we're sending them out to the kinds of units that incorporate those, those tools and techniques. Intelligence law, you know, getting information using certain tools and techniques and procedures might violate international law, might violate domestic U.S. law. Mm-hmm. Our attorneys advise on those things. So the, the, the things that we are invested in and involved in has really, really expanded over the years, so much so that the, the field used to be called international and operational law. And that just wasn't cutting it, um, at least for the Army JAG Corps. And they wanted to make it reflective of all the things that we have to advise on. So the more the broader term, the more civilianized term is national security law. Oh, the other thing that, that we have to have a hand in is the international side of it, where we're interpreting treaties, interpreting bilateral agreements, interpreting status of force agreements. So one of, one of the roles that, that I had, uh, along with my office in USARAF, U.S. Army Africa, when it was U.S. Army Africa in Italy, we were doing a lot of multinational exercises in the continent of Africa. And there were a lot of agreements and kind of running standing policies with, with regard to how we operate with those units or other foreign partners. A lot of that is driven by interpretation of treaties, interpretation of, of decades-old SOFAs, status of force agreements. Mm-hmm. And the experts in interpreting those kinds of documents are presumed to be the JAGs. So we have a hand in making sure that we are compliant with international obligations outside of the law of war, just basic you know, international relations type treaties. Uh, we have to have an experienced cadre of JAGs who are comfortable doing that sort of legal work too. So you can see that NSL is, is not necessarily the biggest or, or even the, necessarily the most important core function of the JAG Corps. Um, I don't think any JAG Corps leader is willing to say one is more important than the other. Like I don't, I don't say any of my kids I like more than the others, but sometimes <laughs> some get more attention than the others. And right now, NSL and military justice are, are getting most of the attention, both, both within the JAG Corps and uh, from outside scrutiny, from media, from Congress, from the president. Um, so right now, if, if there's a if there's a center of gravity within the JAG Corps, it would it would be located somewhere at the intersection of MJ and National Security Law. So I have two questions following that. For National Security Law, you know, you talked about this emergence of the cyber law piece. Do you see National Security Law breaking into de- separate legal functions in the future because it's grown so much? So I. What I think you're asking is, w- would we specialize, like have a have a jag yeah, maybe. kind of nothing but that? I, you know, there's some talk of that from time to time. The Navy, for example, has a track where uh, one of their jags can can do nothing but criminal law. You know, military justice, advising commanders, trying cases, or defense counsel their entire career. The Army ha- has been reluctant to do that uh, for a long time. In fact, the the mantra within the jag corps up until a few years ago was the desire to build broadly skilled judge advocates. So being able to to, to advise competently in all those domains that we just talked about, the, the wow. core disciplines, which is not necessarily realistic. In practice, one if one spends a career doing it, they are likely to have a focus in one or two areas, and then the rest of their time is doing leadership type managerial positions. Uh, so for, for me, most of my time has been in military justice and, and national security law and teaching. Um, I've, I've never been a legal assistance attorney. I've never been a straight administrative and civil law attorney. That just hasn't been my my uh, my background. 
But because of the emergence of these hyper-technical fields and the desire to, or the, the recognition that those require additional learning, additional education, and us sending JAGs to get advanced degrees and then a utilization tour afterward, there is a sense of at least kind of specializing in these in these areas. Um, one can go get a master's in government procurement law. So if, if we have young JAGs who express an interest in contract fiscal, they might develop that out and, and want to do that kind of full time. By the time they're a major lieutenant colonel, those opportunities to kind of stick in that field are are easier to grab. So, but that again doesn't really happen until the second half of your of your career. For the first half, at least for the first four to five years, the JAG course still thinks the best way to produce a good JAG is to have them exposed to all the different kinds of core disciplines to the extent they can. So does that answer your question? Yes. The other question I had was on the military justice um, legal function. And in FM384, Charlie, you, you only have a note on this. And I realize that you know we're recording in 2023 and you may not have the answer to this question. Is there anything that you can share with the listeners and especially you know, future commanders or current commanders regarding the Special Trial Council? So the Office of Special Trial Council was, Congress mandated that each branch create an Office of Special Trial Council. And what they did was the the Uniform Code of Military Justice has been amended so that there are certain crimes that are called covered offenses. And those covered offenses include a lot of non-military specific crimes that in the civilian world would be considered felonies. Um, the initial focus of that was sexual assault crimes and crimes against children, but there's, I think it also includes murder and some other, you know, the, the big crimes, and again, not military specific, so not something like an AWOL or a dis- disobeying an order, something that on the civilian side would also be considered a crime. So the way that's working in in the army is that there is a special trial council. It's a new one-star billet, and that is a, a uh, reports to the secretary of the army, much like CID now reports to the secretary of the army. We already have, so we've had a special victim council, no SV, special victim prosecutors. Those special victim prosecutors are prosecutors that work for. The U.S. Army, sir, you also can help me out. U.S. Army Legal Services Agency. Yes, sir. Thanks. So U.S. Army Legal Services Agency, they are, but they are at installations and they are picked because of their experience in military justice. And, And up until this point, those are the prosecutors and supervisors of other prosecutors that have handled the majority of these crimes, but it hasn't been because they've had to. It's been because that is the way that the JAG Corps felt was, and the Army felt was the best way to get the expertise necessary to handle those crimes that are that can be very complicated, whether that's evidentiary issues or issues of, of getting um, evidence into trial or dealing with people who are the victims of certain types of crimes. But now we will have a, so up until this point, military justice has always been command driven and that comes back that comes from our british heritage so the commanders are the ones ultimately that form a court they are the general court martial convening authority so they pick the jury they say who's they they the judge is not appointed by them but the judge becomes a part of that court martial and 
the commanders pick they're the ones who refer charges to a, to a court martial so ultimately he or she could say this case is going to a court martial or i'm going to dispose of this in some other way whether that's you know an administrative punishment or an article 15 or doing nothing because the evidence shows that there was no crime that happened or the evidence could not show beyond a reasonable doubt that the person accused of the crime did the crime and what the office of special trial counsel is doing is taking away the ability or it's 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 changing who refers charges to a court martial and that will be the office of special trial counsel and we we can't say how it's done yet because we are you know just like any other change in the army you can't really write the doctrine and the ttps for how you're going to do it until you start doing it a couple times and it becomes effective right the 28th of december this year yes sir yeah and i i think for for just larger context it really began about 10 years ago 10 11 years ago this greater intensity of congressional concern about how the military service is not just the army how we address allegations of sexual crimes specifically sexual crimes whether it's a sense or an appearance that victims are being vilified or mistreated or abused or neglected by the chain of command misbelieved disbelieved or whether the accused soldiers are either being you know, shielded from prosecution because they're such a good soldier and losing them would you know, lose combat power, the appearance that we weren't doing it right, coupled with, with fairly low um, conviction rates for when these things did go to trial, conviction rate was, was low. And mm-hmm. that's the case, unless it was a plea deal, um, going to a full hearing, a full trial in most of those, well, not a large number of those cases result in an acquittal. And that's the same for civilian cases too, civilian sexual assault cases, that we're no different from them. But you couple all those things together, and it looks like the Army's processes and the standard way that we've been doing it for decades is not sufficient anymore. And so over the last 10 or 11 years, Congress has repeatedly amended the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ, by refining the rape laws and by refining the amount of authority, the the kind of the prosecutorial authority that senior commanders have traditionally held. And the, and the, the clearest and one of the first examples of this was in 2014, when an Air Force Lieutenant General in Italy, I believe it was, uh, was a court-martial convening authority. There was a sexual assault um, court-martial. The, the accused was a Lieutenant Colonel pilot that I, I believe had worked for that Lieutenant General in the past. And so you have that kind of appearance of conflict of interest right then and there, right. but but the general referred the case to trial based on the advice of the of the staff judge advocate. It went to trial. He was convicted by a panel. You know, our version of a jury was sentenced, and under the statute at the time, that that result of trial goes back to that convening authority, where that convening authority at the time could change the findings could obviate the findings, could could, could negate it, um, mm-hmm. or, or adjust the sentence downward. And in this particular case, the lieutenant general decided to use that congressionally given authority in the statute to basically get rid of the case. And he, he penned a lengthy okay. explanation in a memo for why he did it. He said, you know, the evidence just that came out of trial didn't support it. And at the time, he had the legal authority to do it. But he was, he was vilified in the media for it. Congress got very very involved in trying to understand why that could happen. And that subsequently led to a series of 
amendments to the UCMJ, and that has, again, whittled down the authority of those senior commanders to do certain things. So now they can no longer do that. They can no longer um, uh, change the findings to, to a not guilty or to a guilty, certainly not. Um, and they can only reduce the sentence in a very narrow series of very narrow uh, kinds of misconduct cases. And ultimately, the trend here is what has been called in in the literature um, the civilianization of military justice. That is making our system look more and more and more like civilian criminal systems, criminal justice systems. And the the potential end state of that is making it entirely civilianized, where commanders don't have any control over good order and discipline by virtue of charging them anymore. And they're not involved in prosecuting them anymore or defending them anymore. And every case of misconduct arising on Fort Liberty or Fort Drum or or Vicenza, Italy, all of it would go to a civilian prosecutor and a, a civilian court and a civilian judge. That is the far end spectrum. And some of our allies do that. They don't have a separate UCMJ-like statute. A middle ground is where commanders have some authority, but a large chunk of it is is pushed to legal experts. And in practice, in reality, those legal experts, the JAGs, are providing the advice to commanders on what to charge and how to charge and when to charge. Commanders almost never make that decision in a vacuum and and very rarely disagree with the advice of, of counsel after it's been vetted and, and gone through the wickets. Commanders having some say is not inherently wrong and certainly seems appropriate when it comes to things like AWOL, or as Charlie said, you know, disobeying an order, disrespecting an NCO, those military type offenses that that could not be crimes in Plano, Texas or Charlottesville, Virginia. They can only be crimes in the military. Commanders seem appropriate decision makers there because those crimes degrade their combat effectiveness. They degrade their combat readiness. They don't necessarily have a victim, right? Going AWOL doesn't victimize anybody other than their fellow soldiers or the unit's mission. Disrespecting an NCO, I mean, would you would you call that disrespecting an NCO a victim of a crime? Probably not. So they have a different nature. And so it seems okay. appropriate to keep commanders involved there. And right now they do. Even after this new reform, commanders will still have a huge say in how those cases are addressed. But with regard to the crimes that Charlie mentioned, the the big ones, so to speak, mm-hmm. the, the domestic violence, the sexual assault, the rape, the murder, the kidnapping, the things that are that are really, really significantly bad that can result in very significant punishment is now being turned over not to civilians, but to JAGs, specialized JAGs, the special trial counsel that Charlie was talking about. And instead of the the general in charge of the division or the core having the authority to make that I'm going to send it to trial decision that I'm going to send it to trial decision will be in the hands of a seasoned, experienced prosecutor, just like a DA's office in Dallas or Seattle. So that in that sense, it is civilianizing, but there's still a military, a martial element to the court martial that commanders still have a hand in and I think will always have a hand in. So that's kind of the, the arc of the, the evolution of military justice, and that's kind of where we are right now. Okay, thanks. You already talked about how integrated JAGs need to be essentially across all the warfighting functions. Based on your experiences, how have you made a seat at the table to make sure 
that commanders and staff know, hey, I need to be here. Um, I'm not just a, a TDS lawyer. And and also follow up to that, what would you recommend to not just JAGs, but other staff officers on having a seat at the table? So first of all, ma'am, so we do have all those legal functions and there are times where you are assigned to a place where you'll be doing that legal function, but we're often command legal advisors, um, whether that's, you know, right now I'm a legal advisor at CGSC RB University, or your brigade judge advocate, or your staff judge advocate advising a division, corps, or a higher commander. In those positions, especially like a brigade judge advocate, where you might be the only attorney who's the legal advisor for that command, you sort of have to know, you have to know all those legal functions, and they all overlap. Um, if you, let's say you have the brigade commander wants to relieve a battalion commander because that battalion commander assaulted his spouse. So you have to know, how do you do relief for cause? What is the effect for that? Who's the relief authority? How many times do you have to go to that officer when you're doing an investigation to give them a right to respond? You have to know some military justice, you know, is, is what's the chance that a charge might end up in a conviction? Or especially if the spouse is saying, I don't want to say anything because the, the, the officer might lose their career and that retirement and we have children, you know, that gets very complicated. Um, but then you have things like, um, let's just say the command wants to buy a lawnmower because they have money left over in September right before the fiscal year's over, but it's you're in Fort Drum and there won't be a need for that lawnmower until the next fiscal year, you know, whether it's advising on flags or investigations or it's those, although as a, as a command legal advisor, we can't form an attorney-client relationship with individual soldiers all the time you get people walking asking just basic kind of legal questions about you know i have a phone contract and something happened or we're doing a gift for the brigade commander brigade sergeant major's retirement who can donate how do we collect donations or the frg fund or we're going to do a brigade ball can we get a military vehicle you know there's just all kinds of questions and and so the so the first way that you can you can get a seat at the table is is knowing as much as you can know and being able to answer questions. Um, the second one I would say is is knowing what you don't know and being able to say, I don't know, so you're not giving the wrong answer, but you're coming back. Um, credibility with all officers is very important, but I think especially with, with uh, those people that are specialized, whether that's a targeteer, it's a surgeon, it's a judge advocate, you don't want the commander to lose faith in or anybody on the staff to lose faith in what you're giving them. If you have to come back and say, oh, I told you, you know, this flagged warrant officer can't retire, but actually they can retire. So so it's, it's, it's being an expert in what you do, but it's trying to be around as much as possible, just so you're able to pick up on issues early. Because if you, you know, if you're at a staff meeting and the three has done all this planning for some event, and you have to be that person that says, actually, you can't do that event. You know, if you're in there at the beginning and you're talking, you're in during PT, you're doing a run with a three or the assistant, the, the AS3, and, and you, you talk with them about stuff that's happening and you can get in there early and guide them so that whenever they're doing planning, they get to do it the right way. Those are important. So I, I would say that's sort of, it's not being a roadblock, but, you know, I had, when I was a brigade judge advocate at Field Artillery Brigade, the, the, the brigade commander would often joke that his wife and I were the two people that told him no most often. So it's, you know, we had that unique position where we can say there's there's a lot of things that 
a commander can has a lot of leeway in doing but there's certain things especially around fiscal law where there's pretty black and white rules of what you can and can't do so and then it's just it's it's maintaining maintaining that trust building relationships and all of those legal functions that we do while we're in garrison those all those legal functions happen forward whether you are you know contracting with a local national to get gravel whether you're determining whether you can use a airplane to do an aerial resupply you know whether you have to relieve a commander because they failed to prevent soldiers from killing civilians you know all, all those things happen forward so it's building those relationships in case we have to go in somewhere and do something so that as a judge advocate you get a seat at the table or you get asked questions so that you can help keep the commanders and ultimately the army and the, and the united states government keep keep it in the make sure that we're all doing what we're supposed to do and in helping commanders and that staff do what they need to do help them get to the right answer so i would echo all, all of all of what charlie said and agree with it and uh, it's interesting that you asked that question because we just now are starting to, to look at how we teach our brand new judge advocates not just military law but like how to be a good staff officer how to be a good jag staff officer many of them you know have never not only not practiced law before but never worn a uniform before and throwing that person into the mix in an mdmp is a recipe for disaster if they don't know what mdmp stands for or their role yeah <laughs> so and I'm sure many of us and many of your listeners have had experiences with with newbie Jags who who are just kind of sitting on the back wall and don't say much. So we're trying to rectify that by giving more time and attention here at the schoolhouse to developing their their competence in being a staff officer. And one of the things that I I try to tell them is, you know, our we're basically a useless appendix, right? If if our advice or our knowledge is either not heard or not heeded. And you know what other purpose do we have as a special staff officer? So to get that, you need access and you need trust. Access comes from, of all places, doctrine, because all the doctrine about staffs and planning paint a very clear picture of where a JAG is supposed to be. You're supposed to be in the room during those sessions. You're supposed to be part of you know the ROE working group. You're supposed to be part of the targeting cell. You're supposed to be mm-hmm. doing all these things with the other staff officers. You have a place because doctrine in the army has told you you're supposed to be there. So you have access right away. The other part of it is relationships, right? You've got to you got to develop them. And you can't do that unless you're there, unless you're present. So it's really easy to find excuses for JAGs anyway, to to kind of find more important things to do than go to the, the latest bub or cub or sub, um, however you you want to phrase your your meeting. Mm-hmm. Um but showing up being there even if 99 percent of it has nothing to do with you the one percent that does requires you to be there like you you, you're the only one who has that expertise who can share it and even if it's zero percent you're there and you know embracing the suck so to speak with all the other staff who have to endure the same three hour long meeting so you're sharing the pain right and doing that helps develop camaraderie right develops cohesion you 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 develop trust by being there and sharing the same experiences that they're experiencing like Charlie said, if you show up at the 11th hour at the briefing to the commander and the three is is briefing their slides and you stand up or raise your hand and say, that's we have a legal objection to that. And mm-hmm. the three has never heard you before or raise that objection. You're going to get crushed, as you should be, by not only the three, but by the commander and by the SJA, because that is just unprofessional and, and certainly not necessary. 
Um, so we need to be there, be present early and throughout. And that helps us as JAGs who are not experts in maneuver or experts in fires or experts in comms to help understand the language and context of our clients so that we can give better advice. And when we do give that advice or counsel, um, I, I, I call it the three C's. It's got to be clear, it's got to be concise, and it's got to be comprehensive. You know, clear, it's unambiguous. We're supposed to be the interpreters of ambiguity, not the creators of it, ambiguity. So we're supposed to help clear that up. So clear advice is good. Concise, um, something I'm probably not being right now, but that is, it, it's nothing extraneous. You know, you answer the question before you, and if, if you don't need to go into a soliloquy about the history of the law behind it, and then be comprehensive. Talk about everything you need to talk about and talk about it as thorough as you need to talk about it, and, and don't leave gaps that might lead to misunderstanding of an authority. So clear, uh, concise, and comprehensive is, is kind of our stock and trade or what it should be. So that's the advice that we're giving or trying to give to our new judge advocates as they try to find their seat at the table. Thanks. And I think that really applies to any staff officer, all, you know, the trust, um, the three C's that you just gave. I want to shift back to changes in FM 384. Charlie, we know that doctrine is not the only change agent. So when you were writing 384, how did doctrine impact all of .milpf or other elements of .milpf impact your doctrine writing? Yes, ma'am. So so reaching out to, you know, like I said, we, we did an internal JAG Corps staffing before we went to the Army for staffing for this change to the publication. And that included, you know, that included inputs from our senior leaders from across all compos, and a few of the things that I learned as a as writing this was authorities and restraints on other compos, and then also it's just sort of how the army works. So, for example, um, I never knew what a rule of allocation was. I'm still not 100% clear on it, but I do know that a rule of allocation determines how many people can be in an operational environment. How many, how many we plan for to be in an operational environment at a certain period of time. I probably got that wrong, but that was kind of my understanding of it. So the way that, and you know, this applies across all branches, but the way the Army has, or the JAG Corps is defied, divided between active and reserve components, what legal functions, you know, specific legal functions, whether that's trial defense or legal service or RSOI or just getting mobilizing the masses if we have to do a call up to fight World War III. We have changed the way that we've, where we've put judge advocates, the way that we call organizations within the reserve. And so our plans personnel and training office was having to engage with Army G357 to try to change a rule of allocation because of a change in, in a definition of, you know, what we consider a, a trial defense team in the reserve as two people versus it used to be four people so under the ROEs we were going to have half as many defense councils we needed so you know it was just so some of it was incorporating language to then be able to change that rule of allocation or for example Congress has authorized the military branches to have defense investigators to assist defense counsel in finding evidence at a trial or in preparing for a trial or during an investigation. In the National Guard, warrant officers, certain warrant officers 
officers and non or, uh, paralegals, enlisted paralegals, could function as defense investigators. But you know, one of the changes that we incorporated into 384 was making it clear that they could do that. So therefore, you could, uh, you know, the, those in the guard could be put on orders or get funding to do those functions. And it's even before that we we had uh, so so somebody when. I was in an organization that was just standing up and we were uh, building a new building and we were trying to say, why should judge advocates have their own offices with doors that closed? It was already in FM at the time 104 that says, you know, what what sort of uh, material that judge advocates need and to make sure we could have private conversations because we're discussing people who might be under investigation. So there's, there's it really showed me that kind of the, the interoperability between doctrine and the other .mil PFP functions. Thanks. That's all the questions that I have. Gentlemen, do you have anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? No, ma'am, I don't. So I would hope and ask that that commanders and at the very least senior staff officers who are perhaps getting exposed to JAGs routinely for the first time, maybe there are three at a brigade or a, a chief of staff at a ASCC and this may be the first time that they see a JAG every day or every other day or twice a week, don't make assumptions about what it is they know or don't know. Just like we tell the JAGs to try to be proactive and form those relationships outside the JAG circle, that ultimately our advice is better. I would hope that staff officers across the different, you know, S, G, and J functions try to learn as much as they can about what we what we bring to the table and not shut us out. Not only do we have a right to be there, but a need to be there. But the more inexperienced commanders or more inexperienced staff have a tendency, at least in my experience, to prejudge the value of the JAG and not fully appreciate or understand the scope and breadth of what that JAG is is trained to provide to the staff. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a very narrow specialization or, or niche legal area. Um, it can be broader than that. We can talk about ethics and morals and policy. And and the more seasoned, experienced commanders understand that. And if they have a trusted, candid uh, relationship with their JAG, they turn to the JAG for those other things, kind of like a, a, a one-person red team. And that value is not in doctrine. That value is not listed in a policy memo that, that no JAG is going to go up and say, I bring all this stuff to the table. So I would hope that the those, again, who are not as familiar with JAGs to maybe not read FM 3-84, but be open to learning learning about their JAG from the JAG as early as they can. Thanks. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. I look forward to sitting down again to talk about legal support in large-scale combat operations. Just like writing new doctrine is a team effort, breaking doctrine takes a team. Without the crew and special doctrine division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain Wyatt Harper and 29Pixels. Please don't forget to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Spotify podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates on new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and publications. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, the Combined Arms Center, or the JAG Corps.